Welcome to the Bible Unbound, Ancient Mysteries of the Scriptures Explored, and we are exploring currently the Book of Revelation. Today we transition from the introductory concerns that help us frame the book and understand how we're to approach it, to actually entering into the text of Scripture itself. So we want to start with Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. Now, before we begin, let me just explain that the chapter uh, that we're looking at currently, chapter 1, divides itself into two basic sections. There would be, first of all, the introductory matters, which would be verses 1 through 10, and then John's opening and defining vision of Christ, verses 11 through 20. So we just want to start with verses 1 through 10, and actually, just verse 1 itself, in terms of introductory matters today. So the first five words of the book of Revelation, Revelation 1.1, the revelation or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now, as I've said many times already, and I say that repeatedly because we cannot miss this fact, that if you understand those first five words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, you already have the key for understanding the rest of the book of Revelation. It's a shame that many, many in our day have missed the significance and the guiding principle of those five words. The book of Revelation is not about any of the secondary issues, concerns, and visions, things that occur as a matter of the unfolding of human history, but rather it's the revelation of Jesus Christ over all of these events, and how he is victorious, how his church is victorious, how things are not as they seem, it may appear that the church and Christ himself may be falling unto bad times, but they ultimately always come into victory. So the first five words of the book will be our guiding principle will always be looking for the unveiling and the glory of Jesus Christ. And when that becomes very present and when it becomes very obvious to us, We'll park there and we'll show you how Jesus is being unfolded. So another phrase in this first verse that I want to focus on would be the phrase toward the end of the verse, revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. Here's our phrase, the things that must soon take place, the things which must soon take place. So this is a temporal element that is stressed in the book repeatedly. For example, in verse 3 of the same chapter, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it, for the time is near. There the temporal element is expressed once again. Again, in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 10, he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So John's being introduced 
to a very important element of the temporal nature of the things that are going to unfold in the series of visions that will be brought to him as he resides in that lonely cell on the Isle of Patmos. The things that he sees in his mind, the visions that take place of heaven and of demons and of antichrists and of cultures and of beasts and false prophets, these things will soon take place. When you read the word soon take place, it is the Greek word ginomai. It literally means to come into existence from whence we get our words generate or gene, or genetics. So a lot of things will soon begin to take place in John's mind. Expectation, relevance, looking in anticipation. These are all sort of how you would describe this this time or this temporal element of things which must soon take place, or the time is near the genomai, the generation, the new beginnings, the beginnings that will soon take place. So again, the focus is not to be on date setting or going off to a mountain, sitting and waiting for the end. The anticipation is the beginnings of things, not the endings of things. But that pattern, cultural occurrences, political, spiritual Heaven reacting to the acts and deeds of men, especially whether they're repenting, turning from their sins, sort of a spiritual dance or standoff between two dimensions of existence. All of this is triggered. All of this beginnings, all this soon to take place occurs simply because Jesus has now been revealed to the world. Things will be quite different now that the incarnation, the life, the sacrifice, the atonement, and the ascension of Christ has occurred. Think of it this way. Prior to the incarnation of Christ, what was the world like? Well, imagine the world in the image of a globe. You could look at this round sphere. Imagine that it's perfectly black, with no points or no dots of light anywhere. That is, except for one. There's only one nation that God is revealing himself to. There's only one people that represent the light of God. And that nation, that people, is Israel. And there they are, all alone, in this sea of blackness on this black globe, prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus. But in Jesus' ascension, he made it clear to his disciples that the commission for them was to go into all the world, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then to the uttermost parts, and there proclaim the great gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so everything would begin to change and that black globe, lights would begin to come on in the Mideast, eventually in Europe, and eventually in Africa. And the globe would begin to sprinkle with lights. 
So all of this reminds us of Adolf Adams' great hymn, O Holy Night. Having just observed Christmas, we're familiar with the words that say, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary soul rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. He epitomizes it pretty well. The world was long laying in the darkness of sin and error. Now, the Apostle Paul is sensitive to this transitional moment in redemptive history, in human history, when he begins to preach to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. He says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now. So you see, he's dealing with two ages, so to speak, two times. And the first one he calls the times of ignorance. And he says, those times God overlooked, but now. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Everything is different now that Jesus Christ has come. The globe is beginning to light up. Now, this temporal idea of things have soon to come to pass, or things must be near in terms of their beginning and development, it can be helpful in terms of, of embracing the correct interpretive model. Remember, we talked about the four major historical ways in which the book has been interpreted. And one of the most popular today would be the futurist view. The futurist view does not fit this requirement, this temporal requirement, at all. The signal that the angel gave to John was that these things are soon to come to pass. But you'll remember that when we looked at the whole idea of futurism, we took it into the IMAX theater and tested it there to see what it would look like if the IMAX was playing out the score of the book of Revelation. You'll remember, futurism says that the first three chapters of Revelation, that is Christ in the midst of the seven churches, would be seen on the IMAX theater in the lower corner, lower, say, left-hand corner, would be the ancient uh scene of these letters being spread to these seven churches in what we know as Western Turkey. They would be reading these contents, and they would be hopefully applying them to their church and their individual lives. But then the screen would be completely blank, completely blank, for thousands of years until the last seven years of human history. And that's when the screen lights up again. So it's irrelevant to the majority of generations that have existed since the first century. So they could not be faithful to the terms, the things that must soon come to pass. Actually, it's only idealism 
which is the interpretive method that we're using in this series. Idealism sees it as pertaining to the entire span of church history. Let me explain uh, by way of a few examples. First of all, think of the affliction and the persecution to which the early church was subjected in the days of the Apostle John. It's typical of the persecution which believers must endure throughout the entire gospel age. Jesus says, for example, in John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And he purposes that statement to be relevant for every generation of his followers. They will have tribulation to one degree or another. Paul makes the statement very clear in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Recently, I watched some videos of certain believers in the uh, Eastern African nation of Eritrea. Eritrea is labeled the North Korea of Africa because of the dark totalitarian oppression and the clampdown on anyone who would be minded to practice their faith other than that which is approved in the nation of Eritrea. I was able to look at actual locations that these believers who had since been released, that that they indicated in terms of the name of the town and the area, the region, in the nation of Eritrea. And you could go to a Google map, as I did, and you could actually zoom down into the camps that they were describing. You could see the shipping containers lined up in certain directions and in certain patterns. And you could see little huts to the side. And you could just imagine the believers suffering in the heat, the African heat of those shipping containers, and then not being insulated, freezing out at night, not having any food to speak of, except for a little bit of slop that they would be doled out to daily. You could just feel the oppression, even just looking at the Google map of a place like Eritrea, and you could do it in other places. For example, Evan Prison. In Tehran, you could zoom in on that, and that that prison has many, many, many of your and my brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering only because of their profession of faith. That's always been going on from the first century. It is going on today, and it has gone on through the entire history of the church. Another example would be the work and the presence of the Antichrist. Again, things which must soon come to pass. So John says in his epistle, chapter 2, verse 18, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. So John is anticipating things which 
must soon come to pass. One of those is the work in the presence of the Antichrist, who has been mocking Jesus, who's been manufacturing false representations of Christ and the true church for millennia. Thirdly, by way of example, there are many, many scenes in the book of Revelation, like the seven seals, seven bowls, seven trumpets. These things cannot be confined to one definite year or period of years, either at the beginning, which is what preterism does, or at the end, which is what futurism does. But these things span the centuries, reaching out to the final day of the Lord. For example, the beast which is introduced in Revelation 13, it represents government control, statism, that the state will be the God. Marxism, totalitarianism, what was expressed in Rome, the early days, the emperors were perceived as gods. And it's represented all the way up until modern America. And you know all of the examples that lie between Stalinism, Communism in every one of its forms, totalitarianism, all the way up to our present day. Or the false prophet who was introduced also in that section, chapters 13 and 14. The false prophet would represent false religious systems. In the early church, it was Gnosticism. That's why Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. Or it was Judaizers, represented both by the letter to the Hebrews and the letter to the Galatians, and then every false system of religion up until this day is represented by the image of the false prophet. So these things cannot be assumed to just the first century or to the last seven years. Mystery Babylon is another example. In Paul's day, in John's day, that was seen in Hellenized Rome. But in every generation since then, Mystery Babylon of Revelation 17 and 18 represent the huge corporate commerce, powerful economic forces, entertainment, pleasure. When we get to those chapters, you'll see how clearly those ideas and those themes are represented. But they are not a thing unique to the first century, nor for the last seven years. They have been with us all the way through, as have been the conditions in the church. John addresses those churches of Asia Minor, and there's both positive and negative content in terms of what Christ wanted to say. Some of the churches were victorious, but some were persecuted. Some were lukewarm. Some of them lost their first love. These things have always been with us. They're not to be relegated to one point of human history. They must soon come to pass and have continued to come to pass and will culminate in coming to pass at the last great day. So the idea of soon come to pass there in the middle point of chapter 1 verse 1 means it's relevant to every generation, including ours today. And for us, the book of Revelation, therefore, can frame our current experience by bringing us comfort or admonishing us or informing us or strengthening us not to compromise 
are providing a strong anticipation that Jesus will be unveiled as we study this great book. And so in closing, I just want to invite you into the IMAX of the universe, the book of Revelation. Well, next week, we'll begin to look at verses 4 through 8. And notice how God and Christ and the Holy Spirit are all brought before us and represented to us in this great book. So in the meantime, I hope you enjoy your day. Draw near to Christ. He'll draw near to you. Bye-bye.